Our reading this morning will be Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, which will also be the text of our sermon this morning. Acts 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You may be seated. Well, this morning again, um, we are focusing in on the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. It took place 40 days after his resurrection. And I, I want to help us, I want to remind us there's a bit of an echo here, if we can work on that. To help us and remind us this morning what the kingdom is. Okay, what is it? When is it? And where is it? The kingdom of God and the significance of his ascension. In Daniel 7, We read this, the Old Testament, long before Christ came. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that's the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, many people misinterpret that Old Testament text as a prophecy of Jesus returning to judge creation. But Daniel 7 refers not to the Son of Man's descent from heaven, but his entrance into heaven as the risen incarnate Savior to receive his kingdom. Do we see this, beloved? In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, All power and all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, fulfilling Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I mean, think about Jesus' ministry. And his self-reference as the Son of Man 
indicates for us not merely his humanity, but the fact that he had already begun to inaugurate the eschatological kingdom, that is, the ultimate kingdom. Now, Jesus indeed is coming from heaven at the end of the age to consummate his plan, to consummate the kingdom that he's already brought into existence, and to bring a new heaven and a new earth. This we know. He's not coming back to establish his kingdom, and he's not coming back to take his throne. Our text this morning informs us that Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled when he ascended on high taking his throne. In Revelation 3, Jesus said, I have conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Jesus is reigning now, beloved. Jesus rules and reigns now, and because he is king, we can serve him in confidence of his final victory, just as these first Christians did. Under great persecution and much apostasy. Now, at the end of Acts, Acts, just getting going here in the first chapter, if you were with us as we studied through Acts last year, when we get to the last chapter, this is what we read. This is Paul in Rome. Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this, with all boldness. That's how Acts ends. That is not how Acts begins. It begins with a band of 11 men a few women, where in chapter 1, verse 15, we, we read that there was 120 of them, frightened, confused, and disoriented, certainly thinking not about preaching the kingdom, thinking not about proclaiming the gospel with boldness. So it creates for us quite a contrast, does it not, between the beginning and the end of the Acts of the apostles. So how then did the church expand from its small beginnings in Jerusalem to a church that is encompassing the ends of the earth only a few decades later? I mean, they went out to the known world in just a few decades, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom. How did this frightened band of believers go on to speak about faith and and, uh, belief Faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ so purposefully and so powerfully. Part of the answer lies in the fact that they evangelized and they had missions that employed the expansion of the church. I mean, they went out. They proclaimed. They they preached. They taught. But there is, of course, a far greater answer, and that is... There was a divine power at work through them. Notice verse 8. Part of the directive that Jesus gives to his disciples is that they are to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them. To be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The sovereign power 
of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that would happen 10 days after this at Pentecost. Pent means 50. 50 days after Passover. So here's 40 days after when Jesus ascends. And then 10 days later, he descends in the power of the Spirit. Not only to be with these disciples, but Jesus said to beware in them. This morning, 2,000 years later, if you're a believer here this morning, he's not only with you, he's in you. A kingdom of priests of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, all that Holy Spirit power occurred because of the rightful ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had to ascend so the Spirit could descend. And just notice three points we're going to look at this morning In verses 2 through 5, we see the presence of Jesus for a period of 40 days. That will be very brief as we look at that. Verses 6 through 8 will take up the majority of our time where we see the perplexity, the perplexity of the disciples and the questions that they ask. And then finally in verses 9 through 11, we see the promise of the angels there as the disciples were gazing into heaven. Is it good to gaze into heaven? I was gazing yesterday, but do you see me gazing there now? No, I have a duty. It's good to gaze into heaven, but that's not where Christians belong, always gazing into heaven, amen? So we gaze occasionally. <laughs> three, three things come into service here as we look at the first point, verses 2 through 5. First of all, Luke tells us, Luke is the author of Acts, that Jesus gave proof, verse 3, that he was alive. He appeared to them over and over again over this 40-day period of time. He'd appear and disappear, appear and disappear. Jesus has risen from the dead, and over these 40 days, he would appear to them on a number of occasions. And those appearances were in fulfillment of a promise that he gave his disciples. He says, I will go away, and if I go away, I will come again to you. And indeed, he did. And then in verses 4 and 5, we see the promise of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that encouraged him, the same spirit that led him, the same spirit that equipped him in his earthly ministry, he will bestow and send to his disciples. The paraclete, the comforter, the advocate, the one who comes and represents Jesus to us also indwells us. And his spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are indeed Children of God. It's the spirit that assures you of your salvation. For he indwells you. And he only indwells true believers. Those who've been born from above. Notice verse 3 over that 40 day period. He spoke to them about what? The kingdom of God. So Luke describes here the focal point of Christ's teaching and preaching between his resurrection and his ascension was on the kingdom of God. His focus was the kingdom. Okay, so there's the 40 days. Then we move into point two, the perplexity of the disciples in the question that they asked. Notice in verse six, when they had come together, this is the question that they were asking him. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Again, what what are we after this morning? What is the kingdom? 
When is it? And where is it? Now, there were three points of confusion with these men. Number one was the nature of this kingdom. The second thing was the power of this kingdom. And the third thing, point of confusion for them, was the witness of the kingdom. Now, most commentators uh, view the question in verse 6 as a foolish one. Okay? Despite being with Jesus for three years, Jesus, the master teacher, and despite 40 days of intense teaching from Jesus from the time of his resurrection to his ascension, they still were holding to old ideas about Israel, viewing the kingdom as a theonomy. Theonomy from theos, which means God, and onomy, which means law. That is a theonomy led by rules within borders and a particular territory. This is their confusion. Calvin comments here, and he says, there are as many errors in this question as there are words, end quote. They were focused, you see, on their ethnicity. They were still focused on their nationality as Jews. They were still focused on Jerusalem, and we understand what Acts is saying here, that it all begins in Jerusalem and proceeds to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, the kingdom. The very thing for which Jesus has been teaching. The kingdom. So they were wrong initially as to the sense of victory that Jesus had accomplished. That was their first mistake. They were wrong as to the nature of the kingdom that Jesus was building. They were wrong as to the power and witness of God that builds the kingdom. And isn't it interesting, beloved, that these disciples misunderstood the greatest teacher of all time, God in a human body. That makes me feel really good (laughs) when people don't always understand. Like we've been teaching in Sunday school uh, the doctrines of grace. And it's hard for some people to embrace these truths that come from out of Scripture. And some for a while do not understand. And I think about the disciples who did not understand the master teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this kingdom that he's teaching is to extend to the ends of the earth. So why the confusion? Well, think about this, beloved. These 11 apostles were also Jews. Okay? And as Jews, they would have from early childhood on, read and learned the Old Testament, memorizing three main themes. The Exodus, the wilderness, and the conquest. When we finish finish Genesis 50, probably next week, our next study is going to be in Exodus. So three main themes in the Exodus or the exodus, the wilderness, and the conquest. And the central theme of the three was the exodus, because in it, God is remembering his covenant with Abraham and redeeming his people from the bondage of Egypt. Bringing them out of the land, through the wilderness, and into a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Now, the exodus to the wilderness and finally the conquest was led by one main figure, and that was Moses. Moses. The one who would lead them out, the one who would shepherd them throughout, prefiguring one greater than himself, the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you with me this morning, beloved? Okay, you have to maintain focus. Okay, now Moses was endowed with the Spirit. Jesus was endowed with the Spirit. Moses gave the law on a mount. Jesus gave his law, proclaimed his law on a mount. Yet Jesus is far greater than Moses. For he there on the mount declared the intent and the fulfillment of the Mosaic law. The fulfillment was standing before the people. One greater than Moses. True Israel. Jesus. Hebrews 3.5 tells us that Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So Jesus was a new and far greater Moses. Moses led Israel. Jesus is true Israel. Now, unlike Moses, Jesus will not cross the sea unharmed. Moses crossed the Red Sea unharmed. But Jesus will be swallowed up in death in order that death will be swallowed up in victory. Okay? Because Paul refers to the crossing of the Red Sea as Christ's cross. Which makes our exodus the new exodus, a liberation far greater than this original deliverance from Egypt. This is not political liberation. This is liberation from the bonds of guilt and sin. The great exodus, the greatest exodus, the new exodus. In the wilderness, as Moses led Israel through the wilderness, God established his dwelling place there in the tabernacle where glory clouds of his presence would dwell in the holy of holies. And then while in the wilderness, Israel would be tested for 40 years. You see, it was at that time that they were being shaped and taught of God in the wilderness. But as an ungrateful and stiff-necked people, they, like all of us, have a tendency to do now and again, is to grumble and complain. Jesus, he came and was tested in the wilderness for 40 days, and unlike Israel, overcame and was faithful to the end. You see how everything in the Old Testament points to Christ? Joseph, the story we've been in since January, points to Christ. Everything points to Christ, the king of the kingdom. While in the wilderness those 40 days, Jesus rebukes Satan each and every time he was tempted from the very words of Moses from out of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, second giving of the law. Exodus, the wilderness, into the conquest. Israel was to claim the land of promise given to their forefather Abraham after 400 years of affliction. While in Egypt, 
and when the sin of the Amorites would reach its height. Genesis 15, 16. You remember that? They were to go into the land. They were to execute the judgment of God upon the sinful Canaanites. And instead of exterminating those in the land, they married into the families of the land. You remember that? So they did not fully execute God's judgment upon Canaan once they came out of the wilderness. So instead of being a light to the nations, they were swept in the darkness, into the darkness of those nations. And what did God originally say about the land back in Leviticus? He said, it's my land. The land is mine. You're strangers and sojourners with me, he said to Israel. Now, the land of Canaan was never a possession owned by Israel, it was always owned by God. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns the hills of a thousand cattle. Amen? So as a result of their sin, they were sent into exile into Babylon. A little history lesson. And the northern kingdom went into Assyria. Slaves. After the exile, they finally come out into Canaan, And by the time of Christ in the first century, Israel still thought themselves to be in exile as they were under Roman rule. Did they have a temple then? Yes, but what about the Shekinah glory? Wasn't there, was it? The Shekinah glory is the dwelling glory of God. Had not been in the temple since before the exile. Needless to say, Israel expected God's Messiah to come and turn all of that around. Messiah did come. And he fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament. As the cross of Christ was now the new exodus. Remember in Luke 9, Jesus goes, takes Peter, James, and John up the hill. And the glory of Christ stands before them. He turns from humanity into glory before their very eyes. Remember that? The scripture says that two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, his departure. That is to say they were discussing his exodus, which provides our exodus. The new exodus. Are you with me this morning, beloved? What did Jesus say? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. Speaking of his what? Of his body. Who tabernacled among us. Right? Jesus, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. He pitched a tent of flesh among us, among his people. Jesus said, tear down this temple in three days. I'll raise it up again. Amen? Jesus then would be the true end time temple building builder by raising it up. In the form of his body. In line with Old Testament prophecy. So that predicted Messiah would be the end time or the latter day temple. Amen? Listen to Zechariah 6, verse 12. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this, his place. He shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. King and priest. Priests don't sit on thrones. Kings sit on thrones. Jesus is a king who is our great high priest. In Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord high and seated on a throne. And his train filled the what? Not the palace, but the temple. Amen? And John 12 tells us that Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted on a throne, in Isaiah 6, John 12 tells us that he was talking about Christ. Pre-incarnate. A lot of people are looking for a physical temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem today. For anyone who thinks that, they're confusing the shadow with the end time substance. Amen? You're looking in the wrong direction. When I was engaged to my wife 27 years ago, I left for the summer. We were married in November, and I went away in the summer, and I visited my parents 1,500 miles away, and I took with me an 8x12 glossy, 8x11 glossy of my wife-to-be. And I looked at it every day. (laughs) Isn't that sweet? (laughs) I looked at it every day. Longed to be with her. My, the picture has become reality. 27 years later, I've been with the same bride. I don't need to look at an 8 by 11 glossy. I have her, who's more beautiful than she was 27 years ago. <laughs> I would look a little silly if every time she walked in the room, I kept going back to the picture, right? Don't go back to the picture. We have Christ, amen? I got that illustration of a guy, a theologian who was in Europe, and I said, man, that same thing happened to me, so now it's mine. I own the illustration. Luke 24, 44, Jesus taught his disciples in that 40-day period, everything written about me in the law of Moses and of the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. For 40 days, the disciples were taught about Jesus and the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the fact that he fulfills the exodus, he fulfills the wilderness, and he fulfills the conquest of God's true Israel. All who truly believe whether they're Jew or Gentile, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. There is a kingdom, that is, there is a king who dwells among his people. Jesus Christ ascended, king of kings, lord of lords, bringing forth the new dwelling place of God, which all started at the pouring out of the spirit of God at Pentecost 10 days after this. Are you with me, beloved? 
In John 14, 17, in the upper room, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he said, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. In you. So then the kingdom of God would be restored to Israel in the rule of Messiah realized by the working of God the Holy Spirit through these disciples extending their witness to the ends of the earth. The church is the dwelling place of God. That's you. Sam Storms comments, He says this, Jesus' answer to the question of how and when God will restore the kingdom to Israel is wrapped up in the reality of his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and the much-anticipated outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will result in the progressive ingathering of the Christian community through the gospel proclamation together with the spread of the gospel beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, end quote. Okay, so then, the restoration of the kingdom is even now occurring as the church extends the influence of the gospel, the same gospel, through spirit-empowered growth and expansion of a multi-ethnic spiritual body, That is the true Israel of God. That's his church, which would grow into a great tree. Do you remember Jesus' words in in, uh, Matthew 13? Notice this, verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, if you go back to, say, Ezekiel 17.23, there the birds represent Gentile nations taking refuge in Messiah, enjoying the blessings of the covenant. Given to who? Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. Twelve sons, twelve tribes, a nation. Funneled out from one man, back down to one man. The fulfillment of all things and all promises, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ten days later, at Pentecost, Peter will confirm this reality. The reality of the last days in Acts 2, he says this. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he did. And he still is. Amen? He still is. So the consummation of these last days. Okay, last days. Okay, what is that? Are we living in the last days? Yes. How long have we been in the last days? 2,000 years, thank you, thank you. The last days refer to the time between Christ's first and second coming. It was the last days then. That's why you read it all throughout the New Testament. 
and it's the last days now. So when your friend said, you think we're living in the last days? He goes, you better believe I do. We have been for quite a long time, have we not? Yes, we have. And yes, we are. Now, the consummation, that's the already established kingdom in the not yet fully consummated kingdom. When is it consummated? When Jesus comes back, right, and brings the new heaven and the new earth. That's when it's fully consummated. If he comes back and you're still alive, you'll be caught up, transformed, and be given a body for glory. Right? Now, with regard to the consummation of this kingdom, verse 7, Jesus said, It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. How often has the church ignored this? Date setters. Oh, my goodness. We're to live as kingdom people. Amen? Why? Because that's what we are. We're his kingdom people. We're to live as his kingdom people in obedience to the king, not concerning ourselves with dates or chasing signs as we misinterpret the Bible, looking for blood moons and red heifers in floor plans for a temple in, in Jerusalem and Palestine. In Acts 1, the disciples can't think further than the borders of Israel. By the middle chapter of Acts... It's a completely different story. Amen? Completely different story. Entirely different. Jesus is saying the greatness and the grandness of the kingdom of God far exceeds national Israel. In Galatians 3, 7, what do we read? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. God's true Israel is a people of God, not a particular real estate of God. It's always been that way. That's why we read in Romans that not all Israel is true Israel. We'll learn that in Revelation, which we'll go back to one of these days. Finish that up. So as the nature of the kingdom was misunderstood by these disciples at this point in time, Jesus explained by what power, okay, if we understand the nature of it, he'll go on to teach by what power they will carry out his great commission, preach the gospel to the ends of the that power is not found in and of themselves. It's going to have to come from outside of them. That's why salvation can't be found inside. Amen? People who sit around and meditate upon their navel trying to find some good in there, there ain't no good in there. <laughs> Nothing but sin and corruption. That's why grace comes from outside of us. It's not found within us. Same with the power of God. As they, verse 4, waited for the promise of the Father which you heard from me, said Jesus, right? Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit, that same phrase about the Spirit used there in Acts is also used in Isaiah 32. Look at this. The palace is forsaken. The populous city, deserted, until, until the Spirit is poured upon, poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. A forest. The Spirit of God takes what is barren, and He produces fruitfulness. Israel was dead in religion. 
when the Messiah came, but he resurrected some to life. You and I were dead in trespasses and sins, and he came and resurrected us. This is much more than moral reform, is it not? It's a complete, absolute change of perspective with regard to everything. He gave you life. The Spirit of God. And he does this first and foremost by regeneration of the mind, the heart, and the will. That's what the human will is. Mind, emotion, heart. We're no longer children of bondage bound in Egypt. We've been set free by the cross of Jesus Christ. The new Egypt. Deliverance. We're redeemed by Christ through his cross. The new exodus having received the first fruits of the spirit. As we now dwell and journey through the new wilderness. And what are we doing in the new wilderness? Learning of God. Learning of God. Learning about God, being taught about God. And the more we learn about God and apply what we know about God to our lives, the less we will be stiff-necked and complain, as Israel of old was. And then, as we wander, as we journey, we are waiting for our full adoption as sons and as daughters awaiting for the redemption of these bodies right here into the new what? Conquest. The new conquest. The new land. The new promised land. This is glory. And neither they, here in Acts 1, nor we would have received the Holy Spirit unless Jesus first departed. Departed. Ascending. Going to do what? To prepare a place for us in the new promised land. He ascended. And his, his death was the initial preparation for that. Jesus told his disciples, I'm going away. But I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will bring you there that where I am, there you may be also. Now he died and he atoned for the sins of many, thank you, many, not all, many. His work of redemption is finished. When he said it is finished, it truly is finished. Amen? He provided atonement. Yet his work is our great high priest doing that work of mediation, that work of intercession, his work of prophets speaking through his word, and also his, his role as king and the head of the church continues. And because he ascended in Ephesians 4, look at this. He has given the church pastors and teachers, notice, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. This is our new wilderness. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be what? Children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of what? Doctrine. There's all kinds of false doctrine. That's why we gather. To grow in understanding. 
So just as any monarch must ascend the throne in order to take the throne, Jesus had to ascend to take his throne. He is the king, the king of kings, the king of glory. He has risen to the right hand of the Father, crowned with glory. He rules and he reigns now, beloved, and forevermore. He's already taken his throne. That's the point. We got to know this. He's taken his throne and he rules from it. Am I getting red? (laughs) Until 1 Corinthians 15. He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And like any king that would put his foot upon the throat of his enemy. Declaring. So the kingdom of God is being restored unto Israel, the restoration of which is not a national Israel, not a theonomy with borders, but a spiritual Israel in kingdom without borders. Borderless. Exciting? Are you excited? Hopefully I haven't confused you. Because Jesus serves as head over all nations, redeeming a people from out of every nation. A one true people of God. Verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus disappeared, he he ascends, he disappears into a cloud. This is a picture of the presence of God. This is Shekinah glory. This isn't the puffy cloud that you see outside right now. This this is, remember the pillar of cloud uh, that led the people of Israel throughout their wilderness? Okay? The, The cloud that descended on the temple in Solomon's time. The cloud that descended in the transfiguration of Jesus, as Peter, James, and John witnessed this. That cloud. That kind of cloud cloud of glory Shekinah glory third point notice the promise the disciples are watching Jesus ascend I can't I try to put myself here can you imagine this you walked with him for three plus years okay he dies he, he raises again you see him and they didn't even recognize him right away physically but they knew his what they knew his voice they knew his voice They saw the scars. He said, Thomas, look, you don't believe, look. Put your hand here. Put your hand here. He ate with them. He would just appear in a room and then disappear again. All of that, then teaching about the kingdom, I'd be gazing up there too. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So first of all, Luke says, this is no fable. This is not some made up story. This is something that they saw. They witnessed him rise above and continued to stare. 
But as I said earlier, this is not where Christians are meant to be. That is just gazing into heaven. There's times to do that, and they're wonderful, but we're not meant to stay here. You know, many Christians are gazing into heaven, so to speak, waiting for miracles, signs, and wonders. And because there aren't any, they try to invent them. They whip up people emotionally. And you will do that when Scripture is no longer sufficient for you. You become a sign seeker. Does God do miracles today? Yeah, you bet. He can do anything he wants, anytime he wants. But if you start seeking signs, miracles, and wonders, and the word then is obviously no longer sufficient for you. And this is the word that is to go out to the ends of the earth. So he says, stop gazing. Stop looking. He went up this way. This is the way he's going to return. Now, had they not seen Jesus send like this, they might have always been expecting him because he would disappear and come back again and again as he did over those 40 days. But he didn't, he didn't ascend like this. He didn't disappear like this. He ascended and then he descended in the person of the Holy Spirit 10 days after this, giving them the power to carry out his command. To further the what? The kingdom that he established when he came the first time. And we're part of that kingdom now. And he rules now. As he's being lifted up here, he's taking his humanity to the throne of God. As John Owen put it, the dust of the earth is at the right hand of God. That is the incarnate son of God is the ruling king of his kingdom. Glorified body. So the theological key of Christ's ascension, this theological key, beloved, unlocks for us the next great redemptive event in history. It has nothing to do with the city of Jerusalem. It has nothing to do with Israel, but everything to do with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how that second coming will occur, occur, uh, will occur, and it's not by a secret rapture where people just disappear. And then he comes back again. He's coming a second time once. That's what the Bible teaches. On, notice, a cloud of glory with the angels and the trumpet of God as the dead will rise first. And until then, we see here quite simply the vision of world evangelism. Gospel proclamation until he comes back again. So his ascension was the inauguration of his kingship and his kingdom is the new table of the nations proclaiming the gospel beginning in Jerusalem, through Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And that's the pattern for the rest of the book of Acts, is it not? So the, so the correction of the restoration of Israel here was not restoration of the kingdom back to an ethnic national group, but a spiritual group made up of people from every, what? Tribe, tongue, and nation, a kingdom people. So to conclude, the significance of Jesus' ascension, six little takeaways for us. 
Number one, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is the, fa- is the Father's vindication of the Christ. It shows that he has accepted Jesus' work on our behalf. It takes more than the death of Christ to save a sinner. It takes the perfect life of the Savior in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus' ascension is a promise to us that as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're we're going to be where he is. For the Father has accepted his sacrifice. And that leads us into point number two. Takeaway number two. The ascension of Jesus Christ guarantees Jesus' work as going to prepare a place for us. Again, John 14, I'm going away. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away to prepare a place, I'm coming again to bring you where I am. His death prepared the place. His ascension guarantees the place. Leading us to our third point. The ascension guarantees a future place of glory that is held in reserve for us. You have a reservation in heaven, right? You ever make a reservation at a restaurant, right? You go make a reservation so that you be sure you have a seat when you get there. Hebrews 9.15 says, Jesus Christ is our promise of the eternal inheritance. Ephesians 2.6 goes so far as to say, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you've embraced Christ in the gospel, you are already seated with him in the heavenly places. A reservation in heaven, guaranteed. A guarantee of future enjoyment with him. Fourth, the ascension of Jesus Christ enabled him to pour out his spirit at Pentecost. Luke 14, 6 says, I go so that I can send you a comforter. In Luke 24, he said, stay here in Jerusalem until I pour out the promise of my father. If Jesus remained on earth, he could only be with a number of people, of his people at any given time. Because he ascended and the Holy Spirit descended, he can be intimately involved with every one of his people at the same time. Do you ever, do you ever sense his love for you? I, I mean, I hope you do as a believer. Do you ever sense just his incredible presence with you? His incredible care for you? His involvement in your life? sustaining you, encouraging you, strengthening you, loving you in spite of you. Yeah? It's because you have the Spirit. His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So he had to ascend in order for the Spirit to descend. You might be thinking, if your voice is going, you should stop talking. Point five. I know these, these sermons that are really rich with theology and things are kind of hard to follow, but it, it's for your benefit. Amen? It's for your benefit. 
And if you didn't get everything, you can go home and you can listen later online and capture perhaps what you may have missed out on. All right? That's why we have technology as we do. Preachers can preach longer. <laughs> Although in the Puritan days, they preached for three hours. And nowadays, by the way, let me say this, just as a side. I've heard people say a sermon should never be more than 40 minutes. I, you know, John MacArthur says I can even clear my throat in 40 minutes. <laughs> the word's to be preached. And God's people are to come engaged, as you are, okay, speaking to the choir. However, if you ever think a sermon should only be 30 minutes, think again. I know Christians who believe that, who will sit and watch the Lord of the Rings, engaged. They know every nuance, every sign, every little symbol within it. When you have to follow, man, if you want to know what that stuff means. I went to those things with my kids whenever those were out, and I fell asleep at every one. <laughs> Three-hour movies, man. No problem sitting through that, but what? A 45, 50-hour sermon? No way, man. May we not think like that. Number five. Jesus ascending provides clarity to the nature, the power, and the witness of his kingdom. Teaching us that Jesus did not endorse the disciples' anticipation of a geopolitical restoration of the nation of Israel. Not, not now, not then, or not in some alleged future millennium. I believe the Bible's clear. This is the millennial age. Between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. He declares that he will bring his kingdom purposes to prophetic consummation through the spirit-empowered growth and expansion of a multi-ethnic multi spiritual group of people, i.e., the church, his true Israel. Sixthly, seeing Jesus ascend, his disciples are seeing something that one day, beloved, don't miss this one, one day the whole world will see. And what do we read in Revelation 1, verse 7? Behold, he's coming with clouds. What kind of clouds? Puffy clouds or glory clouds? Glory. He's coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, all men and all men. So the ascension reminds us where our hope is, beloved, amen? We have a hope based on Jesus. We have a hope based on the gospel of Jesus. No loss in this life can rob us of that joy. No trial, no disappointment, no person in this life can rob us of that joy or rob us of this certainty. Nothing. Nope. We have to, I need to be reminded of that. As I remind you of that. It's reciprocal. Amen? Reciprocal remindedness from me to you and you to me and to one another. So our job is to be faithful because this is not where we get our final reward, amen? Our final ultimate reward is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth in glory, the final and ultimate conquest. Glory. That's where he is. 
now and forever. Sometimes when the word of God and his promises are no longer sufficient for them, you know, people will say, you know, we live in a day of great disappointment. We live in a day of small things. So we try to create sensationalism. Don't do that. And don't go to places that try to create sensationalism. They'll always be there. Because the, the word is no longer sufficient for people like that. You know, nations go down, amen? We're seeing America decline. The slide has been greased. And it's on its way down. But nations have always declined. Nations have always imploded. God is still on the throne. Christ is on the throne. He, he's doing great work in Africa. He's doing a great work in China. He's doing great work in, 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 in South America. What great work? Regeneration. <laughs> the spirit descending upon people, building the kingdom of God. That great work. And it only comes through the proclamation of the gospel. The command to repent and believe, but no one can repent and believe unless they're efficaciously called by God to repent and believe. Like you were. There'll always be apostasy. There'll always be persecution. The apostles, those who start out frightened and preaching the kingdom boldly, and they experienced apostasy around them and persecution to them. And they preached the kingdom boldly. So we've been enabled to believe. We've been enabled to, tr to, to, to trust God. We've been delivered from our rebellion. Adopted, brought into union with Christ. Who, Revelation 1, says he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And here it is. He's made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father, weak as we are, we are his kingdom. Recipients of a new exodus, a new wilderness, and a new conquest. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, look and see. Look and see the power of the Holy Spirit in this Savior's life, in what he did to conquer sin and death, died, rose again, ascended, rules and reigns, and perhaps today, perhaps, the Holy Spirit will descend upon you and enable you to believe this. This truth about this King, about this Savior, who will deliver you from your sin. And from the death that you will face, called the second death, and cause you to believe. Amen.